0: Tonight I'm going to talk about what I consider to be um, a new frontier in science uh, but equally a new frontier in the social sciences and humanities and of course this is a controversial notion but that's what Harvard is supposed to be all about. Although it's widely assumed that there are many ways to account for the human condition, in fact there are only two ways to account for the human condition. The first comes from the natural sciences whose practitioners set out more than four centuries ago and with considerable success to understand how the material world works and all will agree they preempted that particular enterprise. The second way to account for the human condition is all the other ways. Since the 18th century, the great branches of learning have been classified into the natural sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities. Today, we have the choice between, on the one hand, trying to make the great branches of learning conciliant, that is, coherent, and interconnected by cause and effect explanation, or, on the other hand, not trying to make them conciliant. Surely, universal consilience is worth a serious try. After all, the brain, mind, and culture are composed of material entities and processes. They do not exist in an astral plane above and outside the tangible world. The most useful term to capture the unity of knowledge is surely consilience. It means the interlocking of cause and effect explanations across different disciplines. As for example, between physics and chemistry and biology, and more controversially, of course, biology and the social sciences. The word consilience was introduced in 1840 by William Huell, the founder of the modern philosophy of science. It's more serviceable in words like coherence or interconnectedness because its rarity of usage since 1840 has preserved its original meaning whereas coherent coherence and interconnectedness have acquired many meanings scattered among the different disciplines. Consilience, defined then as cause and effect explanations across the disciplines, has plenty of credibility. It's the mother's milk of the natural sciences. Its material understanding of how the world works and its technological spin-off are the foundation of modern civilization. The time has come, I believe, to consider more seriously that its relevance to the science, social sciences, and the humanities. Now, I'll grant immediately that belief in the possibilities of consilience beyond the natural sciences and across the other, the great branches of learning, is not the same as science, at least not yet. It is a metaphysical world view and a minority one, at that shared by only scientists and a few philosophers. Its best support is little more than an extrapolation of the consistent past success of the natural sciences. Its strongest appeal is in the prospect of intellectual adventure, and given enough modest success, the value of understanding the human condition with a higher degree of certainty. Now, I believe that it's a matter of practical urgency also to focus on the unity of knowledge, and let me illustrate that claim with an example. Uh, As shown here, think of two intersecting lines that form a cross, and picture the four quadrants uh, that are thus created. Label one quadrant environmental policy, uh, the next ethics, uh, and um, the next biology, uh, the next biology, and the final one, social science. Uh, well, I've got well, I got ahead with myself. Let me see if I can go back. Um, there we go. Uh, at any rate, continuing on, each of these subjects, then I just listed them, and there they are, um, has its own experts, its own language. It's rules of evidence, it's criteria of validation, it's many endowed professorships at Harvard. <laughs> now, if we, uh, now if we focus um, on more specific subjects, as noted here, within each of the quadrants we see how general theory translates into the analysis of practical problems. And we understand that in each case, we somehow have to learn how to travel as clockwise um, uh, from one subject to the next. In a single discussion, maybe in a sentence or two in the discussion, it's necessary to travel the entire circuit. Now move through concentric circles toward the intersection of the disciplines As we approach the intersection where most real-world problems exist, the circuit becomes more difficult, the process more disorienting and contentious. The nub of the problem, I suggest vexing a great deal of human thought, is the general belief that a fault line exists between the natural sciences on one side and the humanities and humanistic social sciences on the other, In other words, very roughly between the scientific and literary cultures as defined by C.P. Snow in his famous 1959 Reed Lecture. The solution to the problem, I believe, is the recognition that this boundary is not a fault line. It is not a permanent epistemological division. It is not a Hadrian's Wall, as many would have it, needed to protect high culture from the reductionist barbarians of science. What we are beginning at last to understand is that this line does not exist at all. It is instead a broad domain of poorly understood material phenomena awaiting cooperative exploration from both sides to the ultimate benefit of all. each of the great branches of learning. During the past several decades, um, several, dec- several borderland disciplines. Hmm. You know, like the mind of an overly bright and eager Harvard undergraduate, this machine seems to be racing ahead of my... <laughs> the truth of the matter is that at those noontime lectures, um, that was mentioned uh, by my introducer. Um, my problem was to make the talk interesting enough to keep them from picking up that morning's issue of The Crimson. <laughs> At any rate, um, the Borderland Disciplines, uh, we're back to them. Uh And I think this is self-explanatory. Most of you will be familiar with these as intermediate disciplines, and they they themselves are synthetic in nature, drawing from several uh, preceding and better established disciplines. And uh, from the social sciences side, in this cooperative effort of exploring the borderland, Uh, The um, social sciences are providing or moving with cognitive psychology and biological anthropology and biological investigations of the foundation of political and economic behavior, which are beginning to take hold. To an increasing degree, cognitive psychology and biological anthropology are becoming consilient, for example, with the four disciplines shown on the slide and in fact they're anastomosing with them in cause and effect explanation other disciplines have begun a cautious entry including even literary criticism which is beginning to stir up troubles along the borderland in the home uh, countries Um, now And these connections are strengthening very rapidly, Uh, and um, as as we saw, for example, in the race to uh, map the human human genome, uh, there it was autocatalytic, and one uh, advances uh, promoted still more rapid and, and and, and a spray of other advances, and so on. So let me then ask the key question: Why is this important this conjunction among the great branches of learning important? Because it offers the prospect of characterizing human nature with greater objectivity and precision, an exactitude that is the key to human self-understanding. The intuitive grasp of human nature has been the substance of the creative arts. It's been the underpinning of the social sciences um, and of the um, a beckoning mystery to the natural sciences. To grasp human nature objectively, to explore it to its depths scientifically, and to grasp its ramifications would be to approach, if not at last, attain the grail of scholarship to fulfill the dreams of the Enlightenment, which failed and stumbled and failed so pitifully uh, before Romanticism and uh, the lack of sufficient evidence in the early 1800s. Now, rather than let the matter hang in the air rhetorically, I want to suggest a preliminary definition of human nature and then illustrate it with examples. Human nature is not the genes which prescribe it. It is not the cultural universal, such as the incest taboos and the rites of passage that are the products of human nature. Rather, human nature uh, is the epigenetic rules, the inherited regularities of mental development. These rules are the genetic biases and the way our senses perceive the world, the symbolic coding by which we represent the world, the options we open to ourselves and the responses we find easiest and most rewarding to make in ways that are beginning to come into focus at the physiological and even in a few cases the genetic level the epigenetic rules alter the way we see and linguistically classify color they cause us to evaluate the aesthetics of artistic design according to elementary abstract shapes and the degree of complexity in them they lead us differentially to acquire certain fears and phobias concerning dangers in the environment, as from snakes and heights, to communicate with certain facial expressions and forms of body language, to bond with infants, to bond conjugally, and so on across a wide range of categories and behavior and thought. Most are evidently ancient, dating back millions of years in mammalian ancestry, And others, like the stages of linguistic development, are uniquely human and probably only hundreds of thousands of years old. Let me now spell out um, uh, several of the examples that I, in fact, alluded to briefly. Um, When you take a Munsell array, as this is a standard color array, left to right uh, across... Different frequencies of light, uh, up and down, or down to uh, up to down uh, in um, intensity. Uh, Then ask the native language speakers to place their color terms on the Munsell array. You know, what does azul? Where does it fit? Where does scarlet fit? and so on, uh, then you get this, a clustering on uh, certain parts of the Munsell Array. And that clustering occurs in those areas uh, where uh, the um, change of perception, as we ha- have a uniform velocity of change in light, uh, the, uh, uh, the wavelength of the light, uh, then, uh, where the perception speeds up uh, in, pers- uh, in, in, in its ability to judge it uh, is uh, where people put the fewest or more le- most least likely to um, place uh, their term. And where it slows down, even though that is not really what's happening in the Munsell array as we see it in the visual cortex, where it slows down, uh, is um, where we place the color terms. This has been done with some 20, uh, in classic experiments, some 20 uh, languages, native language speakers. Um, interestingly enough, yes, interestingly enough, it has also been found, although this is an area that's in rapid... Uh, change, uh, you know, in defining of the analysis and so on. But I think what I'm about to tell you is generally true, that as terms are invented by cultures, going from culture to culture, uh, comparing uh, cultures with different numbers of color terms, from those like the Dani of New Guinea with two terms, to uh, those in the European cultures with eleven, there being eleven uh, terms which are inter are translatable—that is, interchangeable, one on one, one on many, or one on many, or many on one. Eleven. That are translated like this along in all known color terminologies, um, and this is the uh, this is the um, consistent evolution that you can see by comparing one society after another. This is a skittery computer, any anyway, rate, uh, one on. Um, Uh, By comparing cultures uh, with different numbers of terms, then we get this sequence. Two terms, it's black and white. Three, black, white, red. Four, then they have black, white, red, and green or yellow, and so on. Now, what's interesting about that is that there are. Whenever things go wrong in another university or college, and I'm lecturing something like this, I always say Harvard technology. <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, um, well, at any rate, the point here is that um, there are 2,036 possible ways to uh, create a sequence with 11 terms. Uh, with increasing numbers of terms in the set. But, in fact, only 22 are actually followed, or close to 22 are followed. So there's something going on here that I don't think is yet fully understood. As a second example of epigenetic rules, consider the instinct to avoid incest. Its key element now, and this seems to be well documented, is the Westermark effect named after uh, Edward Westermark, the Finnish anthropologist who discovered it more than a century ago. And it is simple. When two people live together in close domestic proximity during the first 30 months in the life of either one, both are desensitized. A switch is turned off. In other words, a circuit is blocked. Desensitized to later close sexual attraction and bonding in the other person. The Westermark effect has been well documented in anthropological studies, especially in in Israel kibbutzim and in the simpua marriage systems of older China, although the genetic uh, prescription and the neurobiological mechanisms that underlie it uh, remain uh, unexplored to the most extent. What makes the human evidence the more convincing is that all of the non-human primates whose sexual behavior has been closely studied also display the Western Mark effect. It therefore seems probable that the trait, and that's different from what's used by most other animals uh, in avoiding incest, a different mechanism than in plants, of course, as well. Uh, um, It seems probable that this is a trait that was in the human ancestral line millions of years before the origin of our own species. And of course, without going into detail, the existence of the Western Mark effect uh, runs directly counter to the more widely known and romantic and exciting uh, Freudian theory of incest avoidance, which being failed a failed hypothesis uh... will receive no more attention tonight from me (laughs) in another wholly different realm consider the basis of aesthetic judgment neurobiological monitoring in particular measurements of the damping pardon me of the alpha wave that is uh... damping of that is uh... damping of the alpha wave Pardon me, uh, is a measure of the um, calming of the, the total uh, brain system. <clears throat> Measurements of damping of alpha wave. During preset- presentations of abstract designs as shown here. Um, <clears> have <throat> shown that the brain is most aroused by patterns in which there is roughly a 20% redundancy of elements. Or put very roughly the amount of complexity found in a simple maze or two turns of a logarithmic spiral or in an asymmetric cross. And uh, of these three arbitrarily chosen designs for left to right increasing complexity, you are most aroused whether you will admit it or not or know it or not by the one in the middle. It may be a coincidence that about the same property is shared by a great deal of art in friezes, grill work, colophons, logographs, and flag design. It crops up again in the glyphs of ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, as well as in the pictographs of modern Asian language. Here is an example in um, an issue of Daedalus some time ago on the brain. The artist was uh, asked to depict a, um, a brain, an abstract design, and uh, there you have it, uh, the ideal level of uh, for arousal of the design. But this is just one of many, many uh, examples. Here we have standard Japanese print uh, and, and uh, ideograms, which show the same principle. And uh, here is uh, how art has been drawn so brilliantly uh, in the history of Japanese writing. This is the Raisho style of Japanese calligraphy. This is a 17th century example, illustrating um, the art form uh, used to give a stern and commanding appearance The impressions of strength, usually used for plaques and back covers, and if I'm not stretching things too far, likely I may be. Uh, Thus does art arise from upon the compounding of the epigenetic rules, in this case, maximum arousal and also the visual releasers, stimuli of assertion and dominance. And here is the Y-O. Style and uh, very different phylogenetic direction, delicate, elaborate, graceful. This is decorative art, it is for poetry. And then consider Punjabi, Uh, the same pleasing level of complexity. Possibly the explanation of this is that this is a maximum level of complexity, focused image by focused image, that the brain can immediately process. As, for example, numbers of objects up to seven. Here is a typical native art, the same. Now, none of this is proof. But the universal nature and preponderance of the effect has to be considered very suggestive. The theory of the arts, I would like to suggest, awaits its Mendeleev, the one who first put all the information about the elements into a periodic table. Now, moving on. uh, Ah, yes, I should mention, too, the um, use of um, design in paintings. Uh, to uh, illustrate a different mood and here we have uh, the, uh, the same figure essentially by, uh, by Cezanne and Picasso. Cezanne takes these figures and rounds the curves uh, so as to create a sense of, of calm. Picasso makes the angles of the figures jagged, and it jars and uh, and, and 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 puts one on guard. Um, now, um, let me move ahead. I seem to be missing. Ah, here we go. Now I want to. I've taken the same approach in another direction, and I want to mention biophilia which I published an article uh, some 25 years ago and is now beginning to have an, an impact in architecture. I mean, impact in the sense that it was something already underway, but uh, the uh, it's, its innovators did not have uh, much of a um, psychological or biological uh, explanation or justification for this new biophilic architecture uh, to be based. And possibly is the innate affiliation people seek with other organisms, especially with the natural world. After my book, uh, particularly trying, uh, you know, showing that there may very well be this evolutionary and neurobiological basis, uh, studies have been made, and uh, the subject is now uh, quite strong as a discipline. And studies, for example, have shown that given complete freedom to choose the setting of their homes or offices, people gravitate toward an environment that combines three features, intuitively understood by landscape artists, architects, and real estate entrepreneurs, and nicely illustrated by this office setting designed for the Deer Company headquarters in Moline, Illinois. People want to be on a height, looking down. They prefer open savanna-like terrain with scattered trees and copses. They want to be near a body of water, such as a river or lake. Even if all those elements are purely aesthetic and not functional, they will pay an enormous price to have this view. And uh, in cross-cutting manner, they want a retreat in which to live and a prospect, of fruitful terrain in which to forage. And the prospect they like best of all is savanna, and large animals scattered through it, either as sculpture or real animals. They want trees, believe it or not. It's test out cross-culturally. They want trees with low, nearly horizontal branches. Now, if you will allow me to take a deep breath and then plunge where you may not wish to follow, people want to be in the environments in which our species evolved over millions of years, that is, hidden in a copse or against a rock wall, looking over savanna and traditional woodland, at acacias and similar dominant trees of the African environment. And why not? Why would that be thought foolish? All mobile animal species, all of them, have a powerful, often sophisticated, inborn program guide for habitat selection. So why not human beings? Why should it not remain in our brains uh, when, um, even when it no longer has quite that survival value. Uh, Moving on then to yet another subject, erotic aesthetics. Now this is the kind of, uh, I have to come back, my slides got a little scrambled here but we'll get there I hope. No, we will not. Here we are. Erotic Aesthetics. Now, um, I discovered that in teaching the course I gave here at Harvard that it was always good that if you had anything about erotics, sexual evolution, whatever, it was good to have it about two-thirds the way through the talk <laughs> because by this time they've put down the crimson uh they uh, at this point they put down the crimson they pick up the pen pencil or pen and now they're looking studiously waiting for them to hear what you have to say which in this case is again uh, There is the matter of preferred female facial beauty open to objective analysis, which is now, in fact, under uh, considerable scrutiny once once the investigators got over the embarrassment of it. The ideal, they find, by using computer-generated images like these and then measuring the responses across culture, and across gender as well, uh, they um, when uh, they they blend uh, many images, and present them. In this case, young Caucasian women. It is the one in the center, which is the average um, of the subset considered most attracted, attractive in the in the outset, and then blended. Not the one on the left, which is the overall average of uh, Caucasian young women, which was once thought to be necessarily are probably the, uh, you know, the most attractive that um, has the greatest response. The ideal has higher cheekbones than the average, a smaller chin, shorter upper lip, and wider eyes, all relative to the size of the face. Now, the evolutionary biologist might surmise that these traits are the signs of juvenescence still on the faces of the young women. hence relative youth and reproductive potential. Now, if this seems irrational and maybe implausible, uh, ask any middle-aged professor whose second wife is a graduate student. Okay, I mean to say that, um, pardon me, um, the point that we are approaching in these studies is that genetic evolution and cultural evolution are closely interwoven. We're only beginning to obtain a glimmer of the nature of this complex process, but we know it exists it awaits our analysis in that borderland I mentioned earlier we know that cultural evolution is shaped substantially by biology and that biological evolution of the brain especially the neocortex has occurred in a social context but the principles and the details are the great challenge in the emerging borderland disciplines in my opinion gene culture coevolution, represented here as a cycle is the central problem of the social sciences and much of the humanities, and it is one of the great remaining problems of the natural sciences. Solving it is the obvious means by which the branches of learning can be foundationally um, united. Now, in closing, let me acknowledge that s- some critics, no, many critics, have said, and they will continue to say, that. Whether the conception is correct or not, the program is impossible. The major gaps to traverse in the borderland between the natural sciences, on one side, and the social sciences and humanity on the other—that genes to brain and brain to culture—they're they're just too wide and complex for us to master. Uh, there exists, furthermore, in this view, uh, emergent properties that can never be reduced. Perhaps, perhaps the, uh, the, the critics continue. They even represent fundamentally different epistemologies. I think we can lay that to rest. My answer to radical anti-reductionism is that quite the contrary, the first steps are being taken. Now, in interest of time, I'm not going to spell out these cases, but I will just um, simply, well, I can't get back to them anyway. Uh, I'll simply mention examples such as the realer uh, in um, the realer mutant worked out in uh, mice down to the uh, level of uh, the biochemical control of the mutant effect on the behavior to what's more interesting perhaps, uh, which is the um, uh, uh, examples such as um, the control of um, repetitive behavior in the circuit that runs from the basal nuclei of the brain through the thalamus, the staging area, uh, to the frontal cortex where the information come, is organized in the, uh, concerning that circuit and, uh, and also feeds back in a way of modulating the circuit, the speed of the circuit and the intensity of it, and that this circuit uh, appears to be very much um, a uh, process, part of the process of rhythmic behavior, of speech, of movement, uh, and uh, can be uh, fixated upon, or it can be exaggerated, it can be uh, loosened. When it's exaggerated, then it leads to the condition of uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive behavior, which is the reason why it's been pinpointed as a subject for. Uh, just this kind of phenomenon, neurobiological basis of uh, what can quickly develop into complex human behavior. Um, and of course, I think most of you are familiar with the rapidity with which brain scanning uh, has advanced and the, in the, in the um, resolution of uh, MRI uh, imaging, motion imagery. Uh, TO uh, MAP ACTIVITIES DOWN TO RELATIVELY SMALL AREAS OF THE BRAIN DURING uh, PROCESSES OF RESPONSE AND RATIONAL REACTION uh, AND uh, ACTIVITY. AND NOW, FINALLY THEN, TO SUMMARIZE, and I'M TRYING TO LEAVE A LITTLE BIT OF TIME OPEN FOR QUESTIONS, REMARKS, to summarize because I know that I'm on ground not readily trod by most scientists and likely to be uh, regarded as risky and undesirable by scholars of many scholars in the humanities especially those who want to make the case that the humanities this delicate system of thinking and creative art has to be protected uh... from undue reductionism i know that's the case but i am i'm going to argue that it will be strengthened by this approach if we can meet on the borderland and reinforce one another's reasoning That we should recognize that the humanities and the social sciences provide the problems for uh, the uh, many of the problems for the biological scientists to investigate and help solve and that the integrated knowledge that comes from approach from the two directions will strengthen the foundations of both of all of the uh, three great branches of, um, of learning so summarizing again, to say this in another way. Biologists, social scientists, and humanities scholars are meeting within the borderland disciplines, and they've begun to discover, and it could not be discovered without the databases of the humanities and the, uh, of the social sciences, increasing numbers of epigenetic rules, such as the ones that I've illustrated and speculated on here. Many more rules and their biological processes, I am confident, will come to light, as scholars shift their focus to search for them, these phenomena, explicitly. One remembers major advances in biology that start, as for example, with hormones. Let's take an example of hormones. One hormone is discovered. And this is a great revelation, but then the objection might be made, okay, you found one, but why is it important? It may be the only one. And then, of course, you find one, people look for another, and then it starts exponentiating, and before long you have an entire discipline and a whole new understanding of how a complex system works. I'm, real, I'm very aware of the conception of the biological foundation of complex social and, 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 and cultural structures does run, run against the grain for a lot of scholars. They object that too few uh, such irregularities are likely to be found to make the case solid. And in any case, higher mental process and cultural evolution are beyond the reach of ordinary reductionist synthetics science. Too complex, shifting, subtle to be encompassed in this way. Reduction, they say, rips human thought uh, from its context. It is vivisectional and it bleeds away, the artist true intended meaning. It melts the ink of gold of the humanities. Yet the value of the consilience program, or renewal of the enlightenment agenda, no less, if you wish, is that at long last we appear to have acquired the means either to establish the truth of the fundamental unity of knowledge or to discard the idea. I'm willing to accept personally either one. Um, I think we're going to establish it. The great branches of learning seem destined to join in this way, and if so, it will be a historic event that happens only once. But, of course, be careful. Surprises, even shocking surprises, may occur. So what will be the outcome? Human nature is such that we will probably know for sure very soon that prospect is what makes future scholarship that connects the great branches of learning the natural sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities so very exciting and worthwhile. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for your lecture. Um,
0: I was wondering if you could
1: maybe comment a bit on what, what new insights you may have now into uh, consilience in the sense of you're now a novelist. You've now kind of uh, put yourself, you've been considered as a, a natural scientist, a biologist for so long, and now you are making uh, a jump to kind of enter into the world of the more artful and the less analytical, and maybe if your views on conciliance have changed in that process or, or not.
0: Well, personally, uh, I, um, I've gone into fiction one time only. <laughs> uh, and uh, so far I haven't been killed for it, but I, I really wanted to write that one novel for a number of reasons uh, I won't go into it now, but obviously one of them was uh, to, uh, uh, to, not so much to further this type of scholarship, but to uh, promote, particularly in the southeastern United States, which desperately needs a better environmental ethic, by example, of a story Uh, how to go about it and how it will benefit. And uh, because I've discovered in writing, uh, making my foray into fiction, well I didn't discover, I should say, the reason, one of the reasons I went and made that foray was to realize uh, after all these decades that people um, respect nonfiction, but they read novels. And so uh, that's the way I'm moving ahead and I'm using what I like to call uh, the Billy Sunday strategy of promoting conservation. You know I've written done research, developed a theory, uh, written one, uh, an, an, one um, uh, book after another uh, nonfiction on, on the, the science of the conservation, what we need to do, what will happen if we don't. I've appealed to the religious community and uh, now I've written a novel and the Billy Sunday um, a Billy Sunday uh, strategy uh, based on Billy Sunday the great evangelist of the 1920s is actually a record of one of his sermons and uh, just for your amusement I'm pretty good at imitating southern dialect so um, being a <laughs> Southerner, uh, so I'm gonna just for your amusement I'm going to um, re- take a little piece of that sermon and then just think, instead of sin, uh, think extinction, about I'm against extinction. So it's, Billy Sunday says, I'm against sin. I'm going to fight sin until I can't move my arm no more. And when I can't move my arm no more, I'm going to bite it. And when all my teeth fall out, I'm going to gum it. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, that's. Thank you. Actually, uh, i get short on cash. I, I think I could get on the circuit in the <laughs> South and make, it, make some fair money. Well, at any rate, uh, the point is uh, about this is that we simply are uh, in the university. Maybe this is not quite you were driving at, what you were driving at in the university curriculum, the College Liberal Arts curriculum, um, we really have to start rethinking what the subject matter is and how we dice it. Uh, up. Because uh, we really, uh, the, the traditional disciplines taught, um, in, you know, in a relatively narrow, vertical way will always be necessary. I mean, you've got to develop the intellectual tools and skills by deep probing in single discipline. But we're going to have to develop new subjects, new disciplines, and new ways of teaching them. And I see, I think that's what the consilience effort will help direct us to. It certainly is going to be a more interesting way to learn uh, once we do things, you know, get into subjects like human nature and how the world is populated by animals and plants and wonderful things like that.
1: Uh, thank you very much for your for your talk. Um, I recently read this book here, Life is a Miracle. It's written by the American agronomist Wendell Berry, and he devotes a good amount of the book uh, to uh, a, a rebuttal of your book Consilience. Who is this? Wendell Berry is his oh, name.
0: Oh, I know Wendell. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs>
1: Um, well then, I, I look forward to, to hearing your response to one thing he says there. He he's talking about um, the conversation you set up between the transcendentalist and the imperial, Im, excuse in, me, in, empiricist. Uh, inconciliation,
0: conversation between a transcendentalist. And, 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 you know, an, uh, an empiricist about the nature of morality. Yeah. Right. Okay. And
1: uh, empiricism, the empirist concedes, he's quoting you, is bloodless. People need the poetry of affirmation. It would be a sorry day if we abandoned our venerated sacred traditions. Call upon priests and ministers and rabbis to bless civil ceremonies. Wait a minute,
0: start again. I'm, I'm having trouble hearing this. Sorry,
1: how about that?
0: Yeah.
1: Empiricism, the empiricist concedes, is bloodless. People need the poetry of affirmation. It would be a sorry day if we abandoned our venerated sacred traditions. It would be a tragic misreading of history to expunge under God from the American Pledge of Allegiance. Call upon priests and ministers and rabbis to bless civil ceremony with prayer. All this, Mr. Wilson calls, quote, the presence of poetry. And he continues quoting you. Sorry, it's just one more sentence. Mm -hmm. But to share reverence, the empiricist continues hopefully, is not to surrender the precious self a language can hardly endure this sort of abuse it is impossible to tell what mister wilson may mean by quote share reverence but to feel reverence to be reverent is exactly to surrender the precious self and is nothing more so my my question to you is how do i respond (laughs) yeah basically but but specifically Uh, specifically in the context of Being a conservationist or having, obviously, a reverence or even just being a friend, how can you do that? Okay, let me
0: say right away, Wendell Berry uh, and I are certainly one in terms of conservation, you know, and of uh, physical uh, world and also of conservation of nature. Uh, But um, his his response is um, typical of the kind that I mentioned earlier about a view of science as being uh, a, a kind of uh, robotic, uh, laser-focused way of looking at the world that attempts to shear away all emotion, strip it of meaning and feeling. Uh, but that's a major misunderstanding of how scientists work and also of the uses to which they dis- uh, what they have discovered can be put. And uh, I remember once uh, when uh, I was at dinner, I'm just adding this on because I've heard a similar kind of approach, um, dinner uh, several years ago uh, when um, the, um, our, our, our previous president was excoriating the humanists uh, on saying, you know, you people have got to um, you've got to get uh, shape up because you know you need to be analytic and objective and and exact the way the sciences are if you want to have the humanities really um, a really a uh, 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 really uh, appreciate uh, um, and so what I did I, I I think I brought him to a halt by what I'm going to say to you and the Wendell the very Scientists and, and, and creative artists think the same when they start working. The ideal scientist thinks like a poet, works like a bookkeeper, and if they have a full quiver, uh, writes like a journalist. But most scientists have deep emotions about the work they do They're, what motivates them is the, the joy of discovery uh, the lure of the unknown, the authentic unknown you know, real discovery of real things and that comes into the range, when it comes into the range of, of the brain, how the brain works, the mind, what is the mind, which is the mystery of mysteries what Darwin once called the citadel that can never be taken by direct assault and it was right. It has to be taken by many approaches, searching for particular breaches that can be made. Um, then uh, science becomes a highly romantic activity, and it does not detract in any way as it proceeds from the power of emotions, all the emotions, from reverence to exaltation uh, to anticipation to deep satisfaction. That um, one finds, we presume one finds, um, even if one is limited to humanities and and traditional religious belief. But there's another thing wrong with Wendell Berry's argument. I mean, aside from the fact he's got us wrong. And that is um, that he wants us all to go back to the farm. he He doesn't. Okay, explain me. Correct me. I thought he did. What does he want? What does he want? Does he want to stop science from messing around with uh, human behavior, or what?
1: Um, well, just to your point of going back to the farm, he wants cities
0: to stop existing in a way that is not sustainable. Yeah. Okay.
1: So that that necessitates people returning to other areas may very well be. But his point is not necessarily that being on a farm is categorically bad. Okay. So I think are
0: All right. Oh, well, let's, let's invite Wendell Berry to Harvard, but not as a pre lecturer.
2: Thank <laughs> you. Hi. Um, I'm coming from the humanities field, and uh, I have a nearer question to something you said. You said that humanities are a of sciences uh, with... That's me. To material, oh. yeah,
0: I think it's me. My feedback, go on. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> can you speak a little more clearly because I'm for some reason I'm having trouble. I have hearing aid, but I'm, I'm having what trouble. I
2: um, so you mentioned that um, humanities may be suspicious of science and its approaches as reductionistic, too material matter focused, um, but um, that very well may be and is probably true. But also on the flip side, um, I believe that um, honorable representatives of science probably just as deeply misunderstand the quest for epistemology in the humanities where literature becomes some kind of a leisurely activity, um, spirituality or theology becomes some kind of a made-up thing. So would you say that biologists these days are more willing to look at representatives of humanities in a more serious manner as also leading epistemologists, just as...
0: I'm not sure I understand the question, but uh, is it, are you saying uh, biology... You
2: mentioned that the scientist can be a poet, poet.
0: Yeah.
2: Are scientists ready to view those working in the humanities as oh, yes, yes.
0: equally... yes, I, th- I think that's right. Uh, in fact, there's a whole branch now of scientific investigation that's using uh, the materials of the humanities uh, to um, uh, make, um, get insights into uh, parts of human nature which a creative artists are trying to portray. Um, and and see whether they can be uh, explained a little bit better, for dimensions, and with a scientific approach. I might add that, uh, too that uh, I, I didn't go into this, but of course, all science is, is uh, goes through uh, reductionism and then um, synthesis and all, uh, you have a synthesis phase, and then you have a, a reductionist phase, and I see my colleague, Gerald Holton, sitting there, the distinguished uh, philosopher, physicist, and interpreter of the scientific method. As I remember, you can correct me later, don't do it publicly, but as I remember, Jerry, as you said, it's like the pendulum that swings uh, back and forth between reduction and synthesis. We have reductionism, And we can only take it so far as, for example, uh, molecular biology had uh, its golden age in the second half of the the 20th century because it went through a powerful reductionist phase. But now the challenges in molecular biology are not reductionism anymore. Uh, They are how the whole thing can be put together to understand the the entirety of it. And I believe that we're probably in the earliest stages of um, what then in cooperative research with humanities scholars uh, and uh, and scientists, biologists in particular, to um, come to understand how the mind works, and that has to be done in a reductionist manner, and then beginning to put it together in syntheses that incorporate some of the best insights uh, from the humanities. I think that's where we are. Where say where molecular biology was maybe 1950s make it 55 around there yeah <laughs>